Hello, I'm Dr. Joseph Kern, and welcome to A Radiant Moment. Get ready to receive helpful insights and a relevant word for today's world. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Now, let's listen in as we bring you a powerful and dynamic word for your life today. This is A Radiant Moment with Dr. Joseph Kern. So today's dialogue is the seven churches of Revelation, Smyrna, the persecuted church. We're on the, the third week. But before we get into that, let's put our hands in our eyes and let's say the prayer we pray every week. Say, Holy Spirit, give me 40 vision in the word of God that I might know the heights, the depths, the length, and the breadth of your word. Give me supernatural vision that I might know my destiny and my purpose in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, high five two or three people. That means game on. It means you're ready. I have to admit, this is the most exciting series I've ever done. I have waited 48 years to preach this. This has been my dream forever to teach on the book of Revelation on a Sunday morning. I've never seen it done. Maybe somebody has. But from what I know, this is the first time I've ever seen it in my whole life of Christendom. And the reason why I'm so excited is because I believe we're in these days right now. And I believe the reason why the Lord put it so much in my heart to do it now is because these prophecies are coming to pass so quickly. And we can see it. Amen. So let's go back a little bit, um, give you a little overview. We find that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 that Jesus gives John a divine outline of the whole book of Revelation. He says, write these things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So he gives them a threefold outline of the whole book. He says, write those things which thou hast seen. In chapter one, John has the vision of the Christ. And then Jesus says, write those things which are and the next two chapters, chapter two and three, are the letters to the seven churches which we are discussing today. And then he says, write those things which will be hereafter. And it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 4, it starts with the word metatauta, hereafter. And it's right after it finished speaking about the seven churches. So many theologians believe that this third part is after the church age. The church age has, is done with. The time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled and God's moving back towards the Israelite people, and when you study chapters 4 all the way to the end, it's no mention of the church anymore. Um, it's very interesting. So that's the three divisions given by Jesus. There are four levels of meaning or application found in Revelation 2.7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And again, each church is said, this, this quote is said to each church. He that has an ear, let him hear. After chapter 4, it's said again later on, but it doesn't say to the church that says he that has an ear. Again, because there's a change in the text after chapter four. But let me give you the four levels of meaning. The first um, application is local. These seven churches were actual local churches in Turkey, in Asia Minor, and there's a direct application to them. The second application is admonitory, our warnings. All the churches would benefit by the letters to the churches. In other words, even the letter to the church at Pergamos 
Smyrna would be benefit, would benefit from reading that letter. And that's what Jesus said. Send these letters, not just to the individual church, but to all the churches. So even beyond the seven churches. In other words, they're all for our admonition. Amen? Set, our third is its homiletic application. Homiletic means a personal application. In other words, even though it's written to the churches, it's, it's, it's written specifically to you because it says, he that has an ear. In other words, it's for the whole church, but there's some things that God says, I want to straighten you about, amen? There's things that I want you to hear for yourself. I'm dealing with you, the individual, not just the church, amen? We collectively make the church, but it's made of individuals. The fourth application, and to me, this is the most fascinating part of it all, is that there's a prophetic application or meaning. In their particular order, they outline the history of the church for the next 2,000 years. When you study these seven letters, which we are on the second letter, they literally outline in history hundreds of years in advance. Absolutely amazing. Only Jesus who was, is, and is to come can do that. Amen? And if you want an overview, you can look at even the chart I gave you. And notice the seven churches' historical value. The letter to Ephesus covers the apostolic church, which is, one, which is 70 to 170 AD. The church at Smyrna, which we're dealing with today, covers the persecuted church from 170 AD to 312 AD. The letter to Pergamos is the married church, and it covers the time frame of 312 to 606 AD. Thyatira is the medieval church, and it covers 606 to 1520 AD. Sardis, which is the denominational churches, is covered in 1520 to 750 AD. That's the time frame of which it seems like these passages are covering. Philadelphia, the sixth letter, is um, the letter to Philadelphia. It covers the missionary church, 1750 to 1945 AD. And then you have the apostate church, the last church, Laodicea. It's 1945 to the end of the church age. And as I go through the history, you will realize how Jesus specifically gives details about these areas. So Jesus is about to give you an outline of the next 2,000 years of church history, but they also have applications to today, amen, and even to the last days. So with that overview, now let's get into the church at Smyrna, the letter to the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, which is represented by the time 170 to 312 AD. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Can we have it read? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. It's one of the shortest letters, but I want to go over the history of Smyrna because in its history, it relates to what Jesus is speaking to the church. Again, that's why he chose it. So let's talk about the history of Smyrna. It is now called Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey. It's, it has a population of 300,000, but in the New Testament time, it was 100,000 in population. Smyrna was 42 miles north of Ephesus. Its exports were tobacco, figs, grapes, cotton, olives, and oil. It had an excellent harbor. It had a 
double harbor. It had a large outer harbor that contained a large mooring ground. It had a smaller inner harbor that you could actually chain in time of concern. It's encircled by the cypress-clad hills. Smyrna was inhabited by the Asiatic Lelegies until about 3000 BC. According to the historian Herodotus, the area fell into the hands of the Ionians from Caliphone in 900 BC, beginning Smyrna's most glorious phase in history. In fact, the well-known person of history, Homer, was born, lived, and died in Smyrna. It had three centuries of greatness, and it ended with the attack from the Lydians. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great, in response to a dream, commands his general Lysimachus to build a strong, well-planned city. And Smyrna, therefore, becomes known as the most beautiful cities, one of the most beautiful cities of Ionia. It was known as the Flower of Ionia. It prospered as one of the greatest cities of the then-known world. From 27 BC to 324 AD, it came under the control of the Romans. It proved to be a faithful ally of Rome and enjoyed enormous material prosperity. The historian Strabo claimed it to be the most beautiful in the world, but it had many ups and downs. In AD 177, a great earthquake destroyed the city, but it was rebuilt by the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Smyrna suffered many earthquakes and fires. However, it is one of the two cities of the seven which remain today, and that is fascinating. Remember that, that it is only one of the two cities that still remain of the seven churches that um, letters were sent to. And that's fascinating because Jesus said, remember, if you don't do what I ask you to do, your lamp or your witness will be taken from you. That's interesting. Let's continue. Behind the city was a hill covered with temples. You can see this picture. And noble buildings which encircled a hill named the Pagos. But the hill was also called the Crown of Smyrna because of the way the buildings formed a crown under the hill. And again, its history inside the letter, it mentions the crown. It becomes very thematic to the letter of, uh, of Smyrna. Behind the city, or we, we talked about that, at the foot of the mountains, though, stood the temple to Zeus, the father of the gods, lord of the sky, rain, clouds, and thunder. It had a main street called the Golden Street, and there were shrines to Apollos, the sun god. You had shrine to Epaphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, Asclepius, the god of medicine, and you had also a shrine to Sibylle, the Phrygian nature goddess. Now, this is really important to its history. Smyrna was the first city to embrace Dominus et Deus, the cult of Caesar worship, and it became the center of it. In 196 BC, it erected a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. They subsequently um, built one to Tiberius, the emperor, and the worship of Caesar was compulsory here. I mean, this is the center of of Caesar worship. Each year, Roman citizen had to burn a pitch of incense on the altar to acknowledge publicly that Caesar was supreme Lord. A person in turn could worship the God of his choice. In return for doing this, he received a formal certificate that he had done so. I find this interesting. Its purpose was to strengthen political loyalty. Well, as you can imagine, the Christians refused to worship Caesar and they were subjected to persecution because of it. Some of the persecution included imprisonment, racking, searing, boiling, burning, scourging, stoning, and hanging. If you don't know what those terms mean, I put a picture in there with, that described these terms. 
they were abused. Christians in Smyrna were absolutely tortured and abused. The Christians, again, because they refused. Well, let me talk to you. Let me give you another. I want to give you an example of this abuse. On Saturday, February 23rd, 155 AD, the pastor of Smyrna, so known as the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, he is the last man to be personally discipled by the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. At 86 years of age, he was arrested and he was brought into the great amphitheater at Smyrna in Asia Minor. Again, he was brought in there because he would not worship the emperor. Thousands of people were there to watch what would take place with this old bishop. The ruler reminded Polycarp of his great age and he urged him to deny the Christian faith. I'm going to read straight from the historical record. Revile Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp answered, 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme him, my king, who has saved me? I am a Christian. What boldness. Imagine this 86-year-old man in front of a coliseum saying, I'm not denying him. I am a Christian. In his anger, the ruler cried out to the crowd, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The crowds begin to yell, let him be burned, let him be burned, let him be burned. As wood was collected and made into a pile. When the people threatened to burn Polycarp at the stake unless he would deny Christ, one of his enemies said, quote, I will have you consumed with fire unless you change your mind. So they were given one more chance. He says, I will burn you if you don't change your mind. You want to hear Polycarp's response? Listen to this. Polycarp replies, you threaten fire which burns for an hour, and it is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. What boldness. We need some more Polycarps. 86-year-old man said, oh, you may burn me for an hour, brother, but you don't understand the fire that's going to burn you forever. Polycarp was so bold, he asked them not to fasten him with nails to the stake where they were about to burn him because they traditionally did that to keep people from running. Listen to this. This is amazing. He says, leave me thus. He who strengthens me to endure the flames will also enable me to stand firm at the stake without being fastened with nails. Don't worry, I ain't running nowhere. I'll let it burn. Wow. Wow. As the wood pile was lighted, Polycarp bravely lifted up a final prayer to his God. To the surprise of all there, the fire kept away from his body and did not harm him. The fire wouldn't touch him. It kept, it was, but it wouldn't touch him. This is history. Finally, the executioner got frustrated, and he gave the command to stab him. So one of the soldiers stabbed Polycarp in the shoulder, and so much blood began to flow from that hole that it literally put out the fire. Finally, the flames consumed him, and he died in 155 AD. In the early years, here's what you need to understand. It was the Jewish leadership that promoted the hatred of Christians and their, and their persecution, which is why Polycarp was martyred on the Sabbath. And again, I have to tell you this. This is not anti-Jewish, but you need to know that the early church was mostly persecuted by the Jewish people in alignment with the Roman government. Why is it important to understand? Because Jesus says, he addresses it. He says, I know them who call themselves Jews, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. And this is why he's saying that, because 
a lot of the persecution in the early church was done by the Jewish nation. There were five major slanders made against the early church by the Jews. They were accused of five things. Listen to this. You might find it interesting. Slander number one. Because Christians partook of Christ's body and blood, they were called cannibals. They accused us of can- They thought that we were a secret society and that secretly we were drinking the blood, literal blood of people. Slander number two. Because they gathered together for a common meal of fellowship, we call it communion, they were accused of gathering together for orgies of lust. They said, we know what you're doing when you get together secretly. You're not eating bread. You're doing something else. Slander number three. Because Christianity at times resulted in split families, they were accused of being anti-family. This is our history. Slander number four. This is why people were killed, racked, burned, scourged. For these, they, these were the accusations. Slander number four. Because Christians worshipped without images, they were called atheists. Because we didn't worship gods in the form of pictures, we were called atheists. We didn't believe in the gods. And it's true, we don't. We believe in one God. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The first, the last. Amen? Slander number five. Because Christians would not say that Caesar is Lord, they were accused of being politically disloyal, or they were called rebels. Now let's get into the name of the church, Smyrna. The name Smyrna comes from the Greek word Smyrna from the Hebrew root that is translated myrrh. So it literally means myrrh. Myrrh is an antiseptic and an embalming ointment that gives its fragrance by being crushed. No wonder why the church was called, because this is the crushed church. This is the persecuted church, and the aroma only comes out when you're crushed. In other words, you can see this, the death in this letter, that you're being crushed, but there's a beautiful aroma coming from you. Are you hearing me? Myrrh is a bitter gum. And it's caustic perfume, which exudes from certain trees in Arabia and Ethiopia. It is obtained by making incisions in the bark. This letter suggests death. That's why it's so short. It's straight to the point. This is a persecuted church. Death is all over this letter. Biblically, though, myrrh was used as an ingredient in perfume, Psalm 45.8. You can read that later. It was very prominent in the days of Solomon. In fact, the Song of Solomon 3, 6, 4, 6, also verse 14, chapter 5, verses 1, 5, and 13, you can see how myrrh was used in the days of Solomon. In Exodus chapter 30, it is an ingredient in the anointing oil. The anointing oil, the holy oil that the priest would use, there were five ingredients. Myrrh is one of them. Then you also have to realize that in Matthew 2, 11, we learned that myrrh was one of the three gifts of the Magi of the kings that came to visit Jesus. They gave him, come on, help me, gold, frankincense, and what else? Myrrh. Now, why is that important? Because it was very prophetic. Because Jesus was prophesied that he would be king, priest, and prophet. So they gave him gold to represent him as a king, as deity. They gave him frankincense because the priest would burn the frankincense. But they gave him some myrrh because he was going to be a prophet that would die for the sins of the world. Do you understand that? So myrrh represents death. It's a, it's a beautiful perfume used at funerals, used on the bodies of them that died. It was also used in the purification for women. You can, um, did we talk about that yet? In Exodus, in Esther chapter 2, verse 12, you can, you can read about that. Also in John chapter 19, verse 39, it was used for embalming. They used it when they embalmed Jesus. Now here's something that's interesting. They gave Jesus, again, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? In his second coming, when he reigns, which we call the millennium, a thousand years, guess what? Let's read it. We got to read this. Isaiah 60, verse 6. This is fascinating. 
The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, and all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So just like they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh in his first coming, at his second coming, people from all over the world would bring him gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. Why? Because myrrh is prophetic of death, and he had already taken care of that. Does that make sense? So at his second coming, they bring him two items because the death has been taken care of. Hallelujah. Amen? Very prophetic. Again, myrrh was offered to Christ on the cross. Look at Mark 15, 23. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Why? Because myrrh is tied to death. And this letter is called Smyrna, our myrrh, death. Okay? This is the persecuted church. Let's look at the title, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. When I say title, I'm talking about the title that Jesus used. For every title that he used, it's relevant to the church he's speaking to. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. It's fascinating that this title that Jesus uses, which was dead and is alive, is a source of encouragement to the church of Smyrna. And you're saying, how is it uh, encouragement? Because these people were facing death and they are going to die. And Jesus says, but you don't have to worry because I am the one who was dead but now alive. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He's promising a resurrection. That you may suffer death, but I was there. But look at I'm alive. And you too will experience the same resurrection that I've experienced. In other words, if your only hope is this life, you're most miserable because there's a life that's better than this life. Don't get all your hopes in this life alone. Smyrna could teach the Church of America a lot of things. It's not all about right now. Look at Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And that is his point in saying, I am. I'm the one that was and I'm now. I was dead and I'm alive. In other words, you're not dealing with a dead Christ. You're dealing with a resurrected Christ and I'll resurrect you. There were three. Well, let's look at this. Let's look at their commendation. It's found in Revelation 2, 9 through 10. Commendation means the things that they're doing right. I know thy works and your tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Oh, you might want to underline that one. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Boy, that's heavy. Jesus gives Smyrna three commendations. He says, I know your works, your tribulation, your, and your poverty, and those are good traits. I know that tribulation, the Greek word there for tribulation is the lipsis. It means pressure or affliction. And I love this because so many times we feel like God don't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know, you know, he's too busy in heaven. But Jesus twice says, I know what you're going through. He says it once, and then he says again, I know your tribulation. What is he trying to communicate? He is very aware of the minute detail of even every tear you've cried. He knows. He's aware. He's a Christ who's concerned. Amen? And here's what's interesting. Remember I told you that these letters are to fix perceptions that the church has of itself. Smyrna is so poor that they're ashamed of it. They're, they're ashamed of the fact that they're poor. And Christ fixes that image. He says, you may be poor, but in my eyes, you're rich. You're wealthy beyond imagination. Why would Smyrna be so embarrassed of their poverty? Man, we can learn so much from this church. There are two words used for poverty in the Greek. 
One is penis. It's the state of having nothing extra. It's being poor but capable of providing for your oneself. Kind of like going from paycheck to paycheck. But the word to describe their poverty is not that word. It's potokia. It means absolute beggary. The, the Greek dictionary defines it as the state of having nothing at all. And this is the word used for them. In other words, it's a state that you don't even have enough to feed yourself. And this church was so poor, they couldn't even afford meals for their family. You're saying, why? Because, remember, they wouldn't pinch the incense to Caesar. And if you did not do that, their punishment was you didn't work. You couldn't be part of the trade guilds. You could, and these people were literally starving because they refused to even pinch a little incense. How different is it today? Some people, you know, nowadays the Americans are, well, God will forgive me later. They didn't think like that. They understood, I am not worshiping. Thou should have no other gods before the Lord. And they were willing to die of hunger. And they couldn't even afford because they had no jobs because of doing this. And Jesus says, you may be poor, but you're rich. Amen? Christ knows their suffering. Jesus warned us of the suffering we might experience in this world. Look at John 16, 33. These things have I spoken to you that in me you might have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Yea, and all that will live, godly in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. The scripture promises. One thing you can bet your last dollar is that if you're a Christian, you're living right, you will be persecuted. It will happen to you. But he promises to give us peace in the midst of our tribulation. How could Polycarp say, I ain't running from the fire? Because supernaturally, God gave him peace in the midst, in the midst of the storm. And you know what's crazy? All the church of Smyrna had to do was just pinch a little bit of incense and say, all right, you're Lord. And it would have been over. But they refused to do that. And you know why I find that so interesting? Because we live in a time, how does it relate to us? In a compromising church that there's, there's going to come a time where every one of you will have to decide whether you're going to have money and eat or die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Bible does talk about the mark of the beast in the last days. And you know what? I can already see there's going to be some Christians, well, God will know my heart and he'll take that mark. You just did the stupidest thing you ever did because the Bible says eternal damnation for whoever takes the mark of the beast. You understand me? That's why we need to learn something from Smyrna. They were willing to die in the natural without eating because they refused to say Caesar was Lord. And many of us might have to encounter that in the future. And we're gonna, where you are as a Christian then, you're going to take that mark. You might say, well, the Lord understands. He don't want my children to starve. No, the Lord don't understand. He told you not to take that mark. You need to understand there's more to this world than what is now. This is why we're preaching this message. We might be the church of Smyrna in the last days. We might have to face some persecution. I don't know. But these letters are written to us so that we can learn and not make dumb mistakes and think somehow God's going to compromise his word. And some of you, let me give you a little hint. If you think, oh, that would never happen. We already buy according to the mark of the beast. You ever looked at your product label? Every product label has a mark and they all start with six. The middle is six. Last is six. You don't buy nothing without the mark of the beast today. Yeah, you didn't know that. The only thing is they haven't put it in your here yet oh what's next okay that's another lesson we'll get to that when we get to revelation 13 so don't think this is so far off listen to the church of smyrna now this is heavy whoa he says i know the blasphemy of them that say they're jews but they're not they're of the synagogue of satan oh we need to deal with that 
There's three interpretations I want to give you, but let me give you the, the interpretation that trumps them all in my view. Let me give you the interpretation in the scripture. Who was Jesus referring to? Well, you remember that the church at Smyrna was being persecuted by people who claimed to be Jews, and they were Jews. But Jesus said, they're not Jews, they're the synagogue of Satan. So let me give you the first interpretation of them who claim to be Jews who are not. It's any, even if they really are Jew, that rejects Christ. In Christ's mind, they're not real Jews if you've rejected Christ. Did you just hear what I said? Okay, so the interpretation is that you may be Jewish, but you're not Jewish in God's mind if you reject the truth of Christ. Where's that found? It's found in John chapter 8, verse 31 through 44, the words of Jesus. Let's hear it. I was going to, we need to hear then it. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Listen up. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Abraham is our father. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Good question. Because you are not able to listen to my word, you are of your father, the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. This passage is absolutely amazing because he's speaking to his own countrymen. He's speaking to the Jews and he says, because you reject the truth and who is the truth? Jesus, he says, because you reject, you are not of the Jewish faith. You are of your father, and your father is the devil. So he's talking to Jews. He says, by birth, you're a Jew, but in your heart, you're of the synagogue of Satan. And this is what Jesus is telling the church of Smyrna. You're being persecuted by a bunch of people who claim to be Jews, but they're nothing but the temple of the devil. Wow. But there's another application to it, and it's just as important. But before I get to that, I need to talk about the Judaizers for a minute. In Acts chapter 15, Jewish Christians begin to teach that in order for Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, to be saved, that they had to be circumcised, and they had to do other Jewish things. Basically, they had to become a Jew in order to become saved. They brought this before the apostles in what is known as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You can read about it. And basically, the apostle says no. It's in faith alone. James reiterates, no, 
the Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become a Christian. And he begins to teach them. And man, you got to read this. There's so much. And I, I, my temptations go fast, but then you want to understand. He says, he makes, in fact, I, I want to make, he actually says that, the, that the, the Gentiles don't have to do any of the Jewish things. And he says this in verse 16. He says, after this, I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David. After what? After what? After the church age. James is telling them, because here's the question. The Jews are like, if the Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become saved, what's to become of us? And James answered that. He says, after that. In other words, after the church age, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. In other words, remember I taught you last week that we were in the middle of Daniel's 69th and 70th week, the time of the Gentiles, that this time the prophetic clock is stopped just so that Gentiles could be saved? Well, that's what James is talking about. Right now, but after this, that clock will go back on and God, the focal point will be the Jewish people again. That's why the book of Revelation, a lot of people don't understand it because after chapter four, it's all about the 144,000. It's all about the 12,000. It's all about Israel, right? The whole focus, why? Because the church age will be done with. Are you following me? So the Jew, in other words, the, the Jew is important. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And that leads me to, in fact, oh Lord, there's so much to share here. Let me, get, let me, give, you, let me give you some interesting facts about the book of um, Luke and the book of Acts. All the insurrections and uprisings are always Jewish instigated. Centurions are always the good guys in this book. Some theologians believe that because of these facts that this two-volume set of Luke were the trial documents required by the law to proceed in Paul's appeal to Caesar. In other words, during this church age, it's all about the Gentile, but the church age will end, the time of the Gentiles, and then it goes back. Interesting that the persecution of the earliest period of the church was always instituted by Jewish leadership. At Antioch in Acts 13, at Iconium and Lystra in Acts 14, Thessalonica in Acts 17. Now, there's a reason why I stated that. So the early persecution of the church was by Jewish leadership. Are you following me? And Jesus said, they're not Jews because if they were true Jews, they would love you. Now, here comes the second application. There's a reason why I mentioned about the Jewish persecution. Here's the second interpretation. You need to hear this good. Write this down. It's called replacement theology. It's one of the most evil things that have ever taken place. Here's what happened. As the popes and the cardinals and the Catholic hierarchy as they, as they, as they, their positions became political. And, they, and when you became a cardinal, a pope, now you had political power where the church before had no power. Well, they had to deal with the fact that Rome is given a bad report card in the book of Revelation. In fact, it talks about the destruction of Rome. Are you following me? Well, they were now the leaders of Rome. So what were they going to do about it? So they wrote, they, they started a new theology called replacement theology. It taught this, that the Jews are no longer the promised people. We, the church, are. We've replaced the Jewish people. Because they had to come with theology because now they were the Roman leaders. How can we destroy ourselves? Now, the result of this had horrible results on the Jewish people. Because now, for the next few hundred years, they were placed in ghettos. Ghettos did not start with minorities in America. It started with the Jewish people. And they were placed in ghettos, and they were given, they would mark them. They were, they couldn't buy property. So many things happened to Jewish people. And what's crazy, the result of replacement theology, now you got to know a lot of churches today still teach replacement theology. They believe the Jews have no place that the church has replaced the Jews. That is heretical in my view. Now, the result of this replacement theology, are you ready? Hitler 
gassed six million Jews. And in his writings, he said, I'm only finishing what the Catholic Church started. Because he believed he was a Christian. He was, and he was an occultist. But he believed that the church had replaced the, the, the Jew. Are you, do you see the result of this, of this animosity towards Jews? Now, you're saying, how do we know that God's not finished with the Jews? Well, it's interesting that when the promises of God were made to the Jewish people, to Abraham, their father, in Genesis 22, 16, he says, I swore by myself. What does that mean? God says, when God made the promise to Abraham and they made the covenant, he made Abraham fall asleep. He says, you can't keep your promises, so I'll swear by myself. And the scripture says, he swore for an ever oath that they would be his people. Are you following me? In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 28 through 33, for time's sake, let me just read part of it. There was a prophecy given to Mary, the mother of Jesus, stating Jesus will eventually sit on the throne of his father David at Jerusalem. Notice, and the Lord shall give him the throne of his father David. That's literal. In other words, Jesus in his first coming, he suffered. But in his second covering, he's coming back for the Jewish people in Zechariah chapter 14. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and he's going to sit on the throne of David for a thousand years. He's not done with the Jewish people. In fact, Paul declared in Romans eleven twenty six 26, that after the fullness of the Gentiles, the time of the church, the Gentile church, he says, all of Israel shall be saved. The Jewish people, he's not, but they are temporarily kind of on hold for the, the time for the Gentiles to get saved. Are you following me? That's what the Bible says in Romans. Now, let me give you the third interpretation. Don't get mad at me. That's history. Jesus said there will be people who claim to be Jews, but they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. They're the ones persecuting you. Later on, the, the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrine and even churches outside now claim to be Jews, and they're what? Not and beware, because Jesus says, if you claim that you're of the synagogue of, oop, if you claim to replace the Jewish people, God, there's so much in this. It, but there's a modern application that's just as evil. It's called the black Hebrew Israelites. There's a group that has gotten so popular in the last 15 years that claim to be the real Jewish race. And here's what's crazy. They might be. They actually might be the lost tribes of Israel. They might actually be Jewish. But who cares? And the, and the New Testament says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. All are one. So what? Does that make you better just because you're Jewish? How does that make you better? If that was the case, she's needing to come because he was Jewish. Okay. <laughs> Follow me through. He said, so there's a modern day application. He says, in, in other words, look at this. It's amazing. He talks about history, but he said, but in the last days, there'll be a group who say they're Jew, but they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. Let me, let me give you, break it down. Because when you, stutter the, when you stutter, study their theology, you know what they teach? The Hebrew Israelites? They, re, they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They reject the deity of Christ. And they reject the atonement of Jesus Christ, that you're saved through Jesus Christ alone. They reject that. Did you just hear what I said? Let's take it another level. They also believe that the Jews that are there now right? That they're not the real Jews, that they are, and that God's going to empty them out by war, and they're going to take over and, and come and replace the Jews that are there now. What arrogance. This is what they believe, the black Hebrew Israelites. Isn't it crazy? God promised they'd come back into their homeland, and all that came to pass, but they have the audacity to say, God got it wrong because he sent you there, not us. Oh, my. Think of it. They that say they are Jews, but they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. Why? 
because they might be real Jews that scattered off. But the moment you deny truth, you fall in the category of the old Jews too. Now you're of the synagogue of Satan. I don't care what your roots are. Amen. So they might be Jewish. They might be. But if you reject Christ like your deal, you've now become part of the synagogue of Satan. And you're actually talking about a new persecution. They preach this. Get the Jews out because that's really our land. You're starting all over what the church did during the Reformation, before the Reformation, and start the persecution. Now, everyone asked me to talk about that. Well, there you go. Amen. Now you know. My view is they're the synagogue of Satan. Might be good people, but they're so deceived they need to repent. Amen? I mean, even me, you know, I, I, I don't mean to dwell, but because of my birth certificate, I can claim uh, dual citizenship of Israel because of my birth certificate, because of my name on there. So what, how does that make me better than anyone in the kingdom? That doesn't change that I still need Jesus. Amen. I just want you to know that. But, but this is what Jesus was talking about in the last few people who try to be better than you. They'll claim they're this and that, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. Anyways, let's continue. The concern. Did you know this is only one of two letters with no criticism? They got no criticism. Jesus said, I'm not going to lay any more on you. The only other church that got no criticism is Philadelphia. And everybody wants to be the church of Philadelphia, but no one claims Smyrna. Nobody wants to be the church that's persecuted. They want to be Philadelphia, brotherly love. Isn't it interesting that only Philadelphia and Smyrna, Izmir, still exist to this day? And they were the only ones that got no criticism. All the other ones that are lamped, their witness has been removed. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the exhortation. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, that ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. This is where this is absolutely amazing. I'll never forget. Let me give you some history before I tell you that story. In Rome, the soldiers came back from the Parthians with diseases that devastated the city of Rome. There also was a major flood on the Tiber that put many of the grain storehouses underwater, which caused famine and more pestilences. Christians were used as scapegoats by Rome. These pestilences supposedly came upon Rome because of the introduction of the Christians' false god. So they started blaming everything on the Christians. Any earthquake happened, any bad thing happened, it's the Christians. Let's burn them! The gods are angry with us because we're serving this one God. You know, and so Christians were burned for the next 250 years, tortured, tormented. Everything was blamed on the Christians. It's interesting. I'll never forget in 1988, I was working as a work study at South Mountain Community College. And um, I worked 10 hours a day, but there, they, there was no one there. So guess what I did? I studied the whole book of Revelation for the whole summer. And I still have my notes from that, I mean, from my notes. And one of the things I look back on, those are 30 years ago now. I looked at my notes, and I remember one of the first revelations. I was so excited because I was like, Lord, what is this 10 days, suffer 10 days? It can't be a literal 10 days because John, by the time he finished writing this book, it would have been over. So I knew. So, of course, the Holy Spirit led me to the library. First thing I do is I go, well, he's talking about persecution. So let's look at the Fox Book of Martyrs, which is the most famous book on what? Persecution of the church. You open it. I mean, got to chapter one, and it says the 10 periods of persecution of the church. Whoa. That's why you need to read. Amen. So here Jesus wrote the book of Fox of Martyrs before it was written. And he says, so watch this. These 10 days lasted 250 years, according to historians. Fox's book of martyrs declared 5 million believers died for Christ during this period. The first period is under Nero, 54 to 68 A.D., 
Do you want me to get detail or you want me to kind of go forward? You, you tell me. Little, little detail? Okay, let me give you a little detail. Under Nero, it took place in Rome and its vicinity. Only Christians were made scapegoats for burning Rome. Y'all know Rome burnt and then he blamed on the Christians. He supposedly played the fiddle while it was going on. Sadistic measures included burning Christians alive to illuminate Nero's gardens. He would literally take Christians and burn them with oil and they were his lamps for, at night. This is pretty sadistic. He beheaded Paul, crucified Peter upside down. The second period is 95 to 96 AD. There were 10 emperors, 10 periods of persecution. It's under Domitian. He was capricious, sporadic, centered in Rome and Asia Minor. Christians were persecuted for refusal to offer the incense to the genius. That's the word for divine nature of the Roman emperor. That's where genius comes from. Clement of Rome was thrown into the sea with an iron anchor, and the apostle John was exiled. Third period of persecution is 104 to 117 AD, Trajan. He was sporadically enforced. Our persecution was sporadically enforced. Christians were lumped with other groups whose patriotism were considered suspect. Christians were to be executed when found, but not sought out. Ignatius was burned at the stake. Other martyrs were Simeon, Zosimus, and Rufus. The fourth period of persecution was under the Emperor Hadrian, 117 to 138 AD. Again, it was sporadically enforced. Policies of Trajan were continued. Any who brought false witness against Christians were to be punished. Telephorus, um, the seventh Roman bishop, was martyred at this time. The fifth period of persecution is 161 to 180 AD, Marcus Aurelius. The emperor was a Stoic who opposed Christianity on a philosophical grounds. Christians were blamed for natural disasters. Martyrs were like Justin Martyr, beheaded in Rome. Pothinus, Blandina, these are all famous people in Christian history, but a lot of us don't know this history. I encourage you to read some of it. The sixth period of persecution was under the emperor Septimus Severus, 202 to AD. And for time's sake, you know what? You have those time periods. Let me just go to, to the 10th period. The 10th period, um, I'll name the periods for those who are listening. The sixth period was Septimus Severus. The seventh period was Maximus, the Thracian, 235 to 237 AD. The eighth period was Decius, 249 to 251 AD. The ninth period was under the Emperor Val Valerian, 257 to 260 AD. Let me slow down here. The tenth period is 303 to 313 AD, Diocletian Galerius. This was the worst persecution of all. Churches were destroyed, Bibles were burned, all civil rights of Christians were suspended. And sacrifice to gods was required. Some of the martyrs were Meridius and Alban. Now, here's what's crazy. The 10th period, the 10th day of persecution is the worst, worst persecution. But what's just about to happen? The next emperor is going to be Constantine. And Constantine's going to have a vision that in the cross, if you use it, put it on your shields, you will win. And it happened. And so what does he do? He gives the Edict of, of Talon, which is the Edict of Tolerance. Right? Which means for the first time, listen to me, Christian, actually, for the first time, the world has freedom of religion. First time. Because of what Constantine the emperor did. And eventually it becomes the religion of the empire. But think of this. Why did they have to suffer? Because that 250 years of bloodshed, many historians say that, 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 um, that blood is the foundation of the church. That the blood of the martyrs. In fact, the martyrs, many times you can read the history books and as they're being toured by lions, literally dragged in half by dogs and, 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 and that you'll hear the Christian's faint voice singing hymns and choruses. And then suddenly the last person dies and it's silence. You better learn these choruses, brothers and sisters. That might be your, your only um, strength in these last days. But what happens is the, the edict of Milan are the, the tolerance, the edict of tolerance, which now freedom of religion, it will be experienced all over the world. 
In other words, sometimes bad things have to happen to people just so something good can come out of it. And you know what? Here's the part that goes beyond my pay grade. Jesus is willing to make that sacrifice if humanity will be better because of it. Amen. There's three major heresies that come during this period of Smyrna. Legalism, which we've covered before. It's the denial of Christ's completed work. We talked about earlier the Judaizers in Galatians chapter 2. They were the ones who said that you had to do all these Jewish things to become saved. In fact, even Paul, or even Peter the apostle got into this, and Peter, or he was rebuked by Paul. Peter got rebuked by Paul, and then Peter later on repents and, and says, Paul was right. Um, it's, it's about faith in Christ, not about being Jewish. Um, Gnosticism, the denial of Christ's humanity. The Gnostics rise up. Those who believe you're saved through your knowledge, they also deny that Christ was human. They, they said he was only spirit. Um, third, Caesar worship the denial of Christ's lordship. So these are the three major heresies that are, are coming out of Smyrna at this time. It's interesting, there is not a single promise to the church of Smyrna that they would escape their suffering. Not one single promise. He just tells them to endure it. Did you know that there's some things that God won't save you from because your life might not be spared, but it will help someone in the future? That's crazy. You see God working like this through all history. Some people... I mean, even the Bible in Hebrew says some were torn by lions, some were saved. Some faced kings and they were killed. Others overcame the king. God decides who is victorious and who's not in the natural realm, but there's a divine purpose for it all. Did you hear what I just said? You need to understand this. In Matthew 10, 22, and he, he says this, Jesus says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be what? Saved. And what does Jesus offer those who are about to face death? Literally, Smyrna was facing death every day. Jesus offers the crown of life for those faithful unto death. Look at Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, I'm going to give you eternal life, which is way more important than a temporary life of luxury. They live for 80 years, but you will live forever. I'll give you the crown of life. It's very fascinating because... The scripture actually mentions that there are five crowns that are given to believers. And five is the number of what? Grace. Because it takes God's grace to endure the trials and tribulations. And for time's sake, I won't read the scripture, but let me give them to you because they are important. You need to understand them. There are five crowns, and this is what he's mentioning. He's encouraging by saying, hey, there's these crowns that I want to give you. The first crown is called the crown of life. Say the crown of life. It's given to those who successfully endure trials. That's found in James 1.12. The second crown is called the incorruptible crown. It's given to those who master their flesh. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 and 26. The third crown is the crown of rejoicing. It's given to those who are soul winners. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. The fourth crown, the crown of righteousness, is given to those who love the coming of Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, 8. The fifth crown is the crown of glory given to faithful pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. I always joke that every one of you should at least get the crown of glory, the fourth one. Why? All it takes to get that is just to wish that Jesus would come quickly. Okay, I'm going to help you get that crown right now. Let's take a break. I want you right now, just in your mind, in your heart, say, Jesus, come quickly. Boom, there it goes. I want to make sure every one of the saints that belong to Radiant Life gets that crown. Come on, talk to me. Now, if tomorrow you say, Jesus, don't come back quickly, you just lost it, brother. 
If this world's more important than it's coming, then I, I can't help you. You just had the crown and you, you had to go lose it. It's interesting because Jesus uses this phraseology, the crown of life, in the midst of them facing death because they understood its interpretation. Why? Because the crown of Laura Leeds was given to individuals who, ran a ra who won a race or was faithful. In fact, the crown of Smyrna was on their coins. Let's look at the coins. It's fascinating. So they were familiar with this terminology. On the front of one of their coins was the goddess Sibylle. You can see her, the Greek Rhea, mother of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. In fact, on her head, if you look on her head, this is fascinating. I'm going to drift for a minute. You can see her multi-tiered crowns known as the crown of battlements with fortresses on them representing the kings of the world. Do you see all those different fortresses? That's, those are, every one of them represents the kingdom of the world. Why is that interesting? Because in Daniel chapter 11, verse 38, it says that the Antichrist will honor the God of forces. It's in the feminine, the goddess of battlements. That's her. So somehow, woman worship, fertility worship plays a role in the last days. And it's fascinating because Romans 17 says, and I saw a woman riding the beast. So all this, so I'm, I'm throwing these out because when I get there later, you need to know that all these things come together in history. In Smyrna, they actually had faces of crowned patrons of the city were stamped on coins for being, quote, a faithful servant of the people. So it wasn't uncommon in Smyrna where if someone did something faithful or they were really good to the city, they put their faces with a laurel leaf on it. And that's what Jesus said to them. I will give you the crown of life. Amen. Amen. Now, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. That's found in Revelation chapter 2.11. This phrase is given within the body of the letter. In fact, the first three churches, that phrase is within the body of the letter. The last four, the phrase is given outside the letter, which I believe is a secret meaning, which I will give you when we talk about the last church. So there's something that groups these three churches together and something that groups the four churches together. Does that make sense? I'll give that revelation when we get to the seventh church. But... Remember, he's, he's outlining the history of the church. And then he says, but there is a modern application. He says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I find it interesting that even though Smyrna was the persecuted church in history, historians and theologians have acknowledged that there's been more killing of Christians in the last hundred years than there were the first 2,000 years of history. According to Massimo Estrovine, in a speech at the 2011 Conference on the Christian-Jewish-Muslim Interfaith Dialogue, a Christian is killed for his faith in the world every five minutes. The book, The Price of Freedom, denied by sociologists Brian James Grimm and Roger Fink, suggests that the number of Christian martyrs per year is between 130 to 160,000. That's a whole city! In other words, in America, we, you know, we, well, poor Smyrnans, that was history. But there's a bunch of Smyrnans, Smyrians, if you will, alive right now. America, we're blessed because we can serve God. But did you know most of the church is a persecuted church right now? They're going to the tribulation now. They're having their heads cut off now. There's cities that have been completely wiped out. So while we sit here comfortable, oh, the poor Smyrnians. Jesus is writing this letter because there's some Smyrnians right now. Don't, they can't even eat. Right now. And the Bible does say, uh-oh, don't mean to get ahead of myself, that there will be a last day, day church who's very wealthy 
And Jesus says, but you're blind, you're poor, and you're miserable. <sighs> Hope that's not us. Because you can have money and have it. And this is a warning to all you, you know, some of you might have some money. But if that's everything to you, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. It'd be better for you to never have a dime and be humble than to have millions and billions and you're arrogant as hell. And you're talking to a pastor who believes in prosperity, believes that, but if you lose your ability to be humble, then you should have never gotten in the first place. Because the one that were poor, Lord, we have nothing to give you. He says, you have more to give me than anything. You're wealthy. And the ones that had it all, they were telling, well, Jesus, we don't need to pray because we got it in the bank. He says, you're poor, you're miserable, you're blind. The promise, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. The promise to the overcomer in Smyrna, it's written in terms of death. And it seems negative, but it's not. This is actually an encouragement. The idioms used are an encouragement to those under persecution. The scripture reveals, listen to this, those that are born twice die once. And those that are born once die twice. That's what he's saying. You're saying, what does that mean? A Christian is born twice, but he dies once. What do I mean by that? He's born physically. That's his first birth. And when he receives Jesus as his Lord, the Bible calls it in John 3, being born again. Are you hearing me? So he's born twice, but he only dies once. He has physical death. The unbeliever, in fact, he is born only once, but he dies twice. There's a scripture. You might want to write this one down before I forget it. Where is it? It's... um. In Jude 1.12, you might write that down, Jude 1.12. It talks about the unbelievers, and he calls them twice dead. Oh, my God. Why? Because of an unbeliever, he's only born once. He's physically born from his mother, right? But he dies twice. He dies a physical death. And the second death is so ugly, so tormenting, that it can only be described as dying a second time. In fact, the Bible tries to describe it into words that those who do not know Jesus Christ will experience the second death. In fact, let's, go, let's hear it. Revelation 20, verse 12 through 14. Play it. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Did you hear that? I mean, it's so ugly, it's like dying again. And he says, Smyrna! Be faithful. Be a man at death. And you're saying, why do you use that term, be a man? Because according to history, when Polycarp, when he was about to enter, he got a little nervous and he heard the Lord say, be a man. He says, Smyrna, if you'll be faithful to the death, I will give you the crown of life. But secondly, you will escape the second death. It's an encouragement. You say, how can it be encouragement? Here's why. Because the second death is so tormenting it can only be described as someone burning in fire forever and ever, right? 
And he's, in other words, what's he saying? Smyrna, you may be facing death right now. It might be painful. But guess what? What your tormentors will face is so bad. I call it the second death. In other words, no matter how horrific you're being tormented right now, it cannot be compared to eternal damnation. So it's an encouragement. He says, yes, you're about to die, but you're only going to go through it. It's going to be a short period. But the people that are killing you, they're going to go through the second death, and it's eternal. No matter how bad you're going through, know that you are going to escape the second death. Amen. Does that make sense? I don't care what you're suffering around the world. I don't know when this will be played. Maybe we'll need to replay it in, the, in 10 years from now. But no matter what we suffer, Jesus says, be encouraged because you will escape the second death. They will not. Amen. Why? Because we've been faithful to our Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. I want to give you one last verse and I'm done if I, if I can. One of my favorite passages is Psalm 73.3. Actually, the whole chapter, and it's Asaph, the worship leader. He was one of the sons of Korah. And he began to complain to God in chapter, or verse 3, excuse me, chapter 73, verse 3. He begins to complain to God. He says, I look at the prosperity of the wicked, and he gets angry with God. Why is it I'm fasting and praying, and I'm poor, got nothing to show, and this dude over here is a devil worshiper. This, de this dude is a, a, is a fornicator, and he has everything. He begins looking at the world. He says, why they got everything? And here, we're suffering for you, God, and we hardly have anything. Have you ever felt like that? Asaph was saying this. He was saying, I'm tired of being holy, and I got nothing. And this jerk over here messes around, screws around, does everything. And he has all the money, all the cars, all the bling bling. And I mean, of course, modern translation, right? But he says he was angry. In fact, he got so mad, the more he thought about it, he goes, why am I serving God, and I'm going through all this crap? He got so angry, he said, my foot almost did slip. He almost backslid. He almost said, I'm done with his life. I might as well be a heathen because at least they got something and I have nothing. That's what he says. Uh-oh. Say, uh-oh. <laughs> he go, until he goes into the temple, God's home. When he goes into the temple, God begins to give him a vision. In fact, this vision is so intense. You know what? Let's hear it. Psalm 73, 17 through 22. Last verse, we're done. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So Asaph is jealous over the prosperity of the wicked, and then God says, oh, son, really? Let me show you their end. And he takes them to Revelation 20. And he sees their terror. They were wealthy in this world, but now they are tormented when they see their end. And Asaph goes, he can't believe that he was so disrespectful to the Lord and not understanding that this life is temporary. In fact, when he saw their end, he, said, he says, I'm 
dumb as an animal. I'm stupid as a beast. Who am I to question your character? Who am I to question your righteousness? Who am I to question your balance of the universe? He had a vision of Revelation 20. He says, Lord, I'll keep fasting and praying. Yes, God believes in prosperity. God believes in, he wants to make you wealthy and rich. The scripture tells us that. But did you know there are some people whose calling isn't that? Did you know that some people are actually called to suffer? We're all called to suffer, but some of us more or less to different degrees. Are you hearing me? And the reason why I'm saying that is this. You know, I know we all want to be the church of Philadelphia, but some of us in here might be the church of Smyrna. Can you live with that? Can you look at Christ and say, I'll be faithful to the death? Amen. I believe in prosperity, but we got to have a balance here knowing that whatever your lot, like that old hymn says, I will teach my heart to say, how great thou art, right? Whatever my lot, whatever my lot, great is thy faithfulness, right? Let's stand in the house of the Lord. Amen. How much you love him? Amen. It's taken me years to be prepared for these messages, and I hope you feel what I feel. I just want to be faithful to God. Yeah, I want to be prosperous. I want to bless the world. But whatever my lot, I want to be, I want to hear thou good and well done thy faithful servant. Amen. And um, if we can have our altar workers up here. And here's what I'd like to do. If there's anyone who's, maybe your heart is a little wrong. doesn't mean you're evil. But you just know that there's something God's working in you. And this message has pricked you at the heart. I would like you to come up and we will pray for you. Secondly, if you have never asked Jesus Christ into your heart because this is the only way to salvation. Listen, you don't want to experience the second death. There's only one escape. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. And we're not saved through our grandparents. God only has sons and daughters. He doesn't have grandsons and granddaughters. Maybe you're in here and you're the head deacon's son or you're the second, whatever. I don't know who, you're my son. It doesn't matter. You're not saved through relationships of human. You're saved by direct relationship with Jesus. And if there's anyone here that says, you know what, I need to get my life right with God. If that's you, raise your hand right now. Let me see your hand. Anyone in here? Thank you. I appreciate that honesty. Thank you. I appreciate the honesty. And here's what I'd like you two to come up. Just come on up. We're going to pray for you. No shame. Come on up. Let's, let's pray for you. I want to pray for you guys. Thank you for raising your hand and being honest. Amen. Come on. Come on. One of my ladies, can you come over here and we're going to pray for her and we're going to pray for, for my brother over here, Ricardo. Here's what I'm going to do. You know, I would like them to sing a song. I want us to join them. It's not going to take long. We're talking about five minutes. And anyone who would like to come up for prayer, please come on up. And then we'll dismiss in prayer. We're not officially dismissed yet. And why? I need your prayer. You should be praying in the spirit right now because this is the time to get people right with God. Amen. Come on. Go ahead and lead us in a song. I want to thank you from my heart as your pastor for being so respectful. Because of the power of your prayers, I wish you could feel what's going on here. Even me praying for the young boys, Jamal's boys. 
that's because we're in agreement and we're praying in God's spirit thank you for being not in a hurry I appreciate that amen come on give yourselves a hand because remember when that was you up here you didn't want everyone to leave you want people to celebrate you and the Bible says if one comes to the kingdom all of heaven what amen so here's what we're gonna do I'm gonna say a prayer dismissal but we're gonna keep the altars open because we're not I'm in no hurry my team's in no hurry we'll pray until everyone is finished being ministered to that's my dedication to you so let's say a prayer of dismissal and then on um, the praising we'll continue worshiping we'll continue praying and you'll have a wonderful day don't forget tonight at um, the gathering let's pray father we thank you Lord and we give you praise we give you glory we thank you for today is the day that you have made we will rejoice and be glad in it we thank you for the people at the altar we thank you for the salvations we thank you for the victory Lord I pray for everyone come on touch someone next to you go ahead touch someone next to you Father Lord we just bless our neighbor and we pray that they be blessed coming in and blessed going out in Jesus name everyone said amen come on high five five people amen We thank you for your participation in another broadcast of A Radiant Moment. This broadcast is brought to you by the generous giving and donations of our listening audience. If this program has been a blessing to your life, you can help us expand our listening audience by giving a financial donation at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Simply click the online giving tab and fill out the amount God has placed in your heart. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Tune in next time as we bring another relevant and radiant word for your life today. Until next time, and remember, God loves you.